1: Hello everybody, welcome to the Greatest Games podcast on the Blizzard. My name is Marcus Speller with me is Jonathan Wilson and with us today everybody is Steve Tung, an author and former sports journalist having covered nine World Cups, no less, and back in the day Steve founded Foul, regarded as the first football fanzine. Steve's latest publication though is a book called West Midlands Turf Wars, a history of football in the West Midlands. Steve, pleasure to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you very much, very good to be here.
1: Today we go back to May 1981 for the FA Cup final replay that ended Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 2. Steve, why have you chosen this game?
2: Well, two things really. Uh, it was a very exciting, very entertaining and quite feisty final, the, the replay at least, rather than the first game. Certainly one of the best of the era. And I think a bit of a turning point for both clubs, which we might might come to later. Um, as a minor historical point, it was also the 100th FA Cup final, which attracted a bit of attention at the time. And, and then there's the personal element, which I think um, has been the case for many people in this, this series, this excellent series, I meant to say. Um, I was working on local radio in London, LBC, um, which had only come on air in 1973 as the first commercial station once independent local radio stations started up. And football, fortunately, was regarded as a big part of the coverage and was well backed by the management. So by about 1981, um, I was going abroad with with Arsenal and West Ham and Spurs and teams in Europe and so on. And um, we had a very lucky run in the FA Cup in particular because uh, Arsenal, if you remember, got to three successive finals, of which the third, of course, was a London derby against West Ham, which was very big for us. And I was, so I was seeing a lot of both of, of those teams in particular, uh, Spurs especially, um, got to know the manager, Keith Birkinshaw, who's a lovely man very well, and some of the players. And the great thing about local radio, of course, you're allowed to be a little bit biased. Um, <laughs> you don't want to be too biased to one particular club because then you upset the supporters of all the other clubs. And I think I think we had 12 because we pretended Watford was in London, which of course it isn't really. Um, but when it's a London team against someone from Manchester or Merseyside or wherever, you're you're allowed to uh, to hope that they win. And uh, from a purely personal, and selfish point of view, of course, it makes for a much better much better program um, if if they do, especially on an occasion like the Cup final. We were doing full ninety minute commentary of of, uh, of both games, which was quite rare for us. Uh, and you always want to be interviewing winners rather than losers, ideally on a day like that. But um, say, I, I like the people at Spurs, um, so we we gave it a very big build-up. Um, funny the things that stick in your mind. I can actually remember recording the trailer for it, which um, shamelessly quoted the um, the famous couplet: "Ozzy's going to Wembley; his knees have gone all trembly <laughs>
1: Wonder right. when that was going to get a mention? yeah. wonderful Dylan-esque lyric, um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> number five in the charts, as you may or may not remember. his
1: uh, dream,
2: and stayed there for um, five or six weeks, apparently. So, so that was uh, that was the build-up to the first game, which of course became a, a, a bit of an climax.
1: Yeah, but we should say, by the way, that when you talk about being biased on local radio and so your first love is of course late Norrient. so maybe were you, were you always quick to say well i'm actually a late norient fan to try and appease some of the uh the red side of north london perhaps yes
2: i i think they knew that but of course we didn't get many 90 minute commentaries on late norient um, <laughs> the biggest game we did get uh, where i had to pretend not to be too biased was the semi-final of 1978 when they played arsenal at standard bridge which became another huge anti-climax as well because Malcolm McDonald kept shooting and getting deflections off our players into the net, and it became a, a very one sided semi final indeed.
1: Yeah, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, this this FA Cup final uh, uh, replay um, was it, it was it was a great game. What are your thoughts immediately when someone thinks nineteen eighty one FA Cup final?
0: Well, this was the last cup final I didn't watch. Um, oh. my, my first cup final was eighty two, but it is that weird thing that happens, um, and I, I I wrote about this when when Get Miller died that when you're a kid growing up, the stuff that happened immediately before your sort of footballing consciousness, that, that takes on this, this additional power. So for me, growing up in the early 80s, Gert Müller was always the greatest goal scorer because he, you know, in the 80s, he was referred back to as, well, is, is, this, is Ian Rush as good as Gert Müller? And so you thought, oh, Gert Müller, he must have been great because he's better than maybe better than Rush. And this final, or, or the replay rather, uh, and obviously the Ricky Villa goal, which remains one of the most famous FA Cup final goals, one of the most famous goals at Wembley, was constantly referred back to as, well, this, this final, was it's not quite as good as 81, is it? So 87, I think, when um, Coventry uh, beat Spurs, uh, was the first one, first couple I remember watching that was referred back to as, yeah, m- maybe this is actually the best of the decade, maybe this is better than 81. So yeah, th- th- this game, although I only watched it in, in highlights, was a huge part of part of my childhood and was sort of one of those touchstone games that you just knew what had happened even though you hadn't watched it live.
1: Mm. And Steve, you mentioned uh, Keith Birkinshaw, the Spurs manager there. Um, obviously, you, you worked with quite a bit. Um, one of the most decorated Spurs managers in history, actually. I think only the great Bill Nicholson maybe has won more trophies than him as Spurs manager. Quite an intriguing guy. Didn't have a... Spectacular playing career. I don't think anyone would argue with that too much. Hadn't done a huge amount before taking the Spurs job. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him? You know what type of man he was and, and how he impacted the club when he took over.
2: Yes, um, easily forgotten that he. It wasn't his first FA Cup final. He was the coach of Newcastle in 1974, when Newcastle got very badly beaten by Liverpool. It was three 0 And one of the things he said going into 81 was that he thought that the Newcastle team completely froze on that day. Um, It it had been billed as a game in which they would give a very good Liverpool team a decent game because they had Malcolm McDonald around, for whom there was huge amounts of publicity, who did virtually nothing all game. And one of the things Birkinshaw was very keen on in 1981. Uh, was that they shouldn't just freeze, as, as he felt his team had. Um, or that it,
1: their knees shouldn't go trembly, perhaps. Indeed, as well. yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Great worry that Aussie had gone all-trembly. Yeah. Um,
2: but um, he came; he was brought down by uh, Terry Neal, when Terry Neal, rather surprisingly, a former great Arsenal man, of course, uh, became, ahead uh, of George Graham doing the same thing, became a manager of Tottenham. And, and was therefore never terribly popular in that In fact, he did reasonably well as manager of, of Tottenham before doing what really he was always going to do and go back to Arsenal. He brought, brought Keith down with him. And he was, in many ways, he was the slightly stereotypical doer Yorkshireman. But, but like a lot of those stereotypes, once you got to know him, he, he did have a decent sense of humour. The players liked him. He, he got on very well. He was very reasonable with the media. And we had, of course, much better access to to managers and players in those days. He was always very good. The only thing I never quite got over to him was that um, he was obviously a fan of of BBC Radio London rather than LBC, because virtually every time I went to see him on a Friday after training, um, he would say, you're Tony Blackburn's station, aren't you? Tony Blackburn, <laughs> at that time, had left Radio One, one of one of the coals of Radio One, of the real, uh, real older generation. He'd got a program on Radio London, which he played with what he always claimed was his favourite soul music. And Keith obviously listened to this on on the way into training. It was definitely on every Friday morning. And so, uh, in the end, I just would sort of nod and say yes, um, without really wanted to correct him and say that LBC was actually the news and sports station, which gave Spurs and all the other London clubs, all this coverage. But um, he was a very good man. Um, He did end up with a very good record, as you say, ending slightly sadly, really, in that, of course, his final match was 1984 and the UEFA Cup final, which they went on penalties, um, at which stage he already knew he was leaving um, because he'd just fallen out with the new regime, the Irving Scholar regime. Who wanted to take Tottenham in a new, much more uh, corporate direction. Um, and his famous quote, of course, looking back at the ground, was that there used to be a football club there. So it was a sad finish uh, in a way, and, and Pedistries took over from him. But it, but I, I think it wasn't just me, I, I would say everybody among the media core and the, the supporters who gave him a, a terrific farewell Uh, really liked him very much he was a very
1: nice guy Mm. well of course the opposite um, his opposite number John Bond in the Man City dugout uh, West Ham legend did later work for the BBC uh, you know rather than LBC as a a commentator but uh, Jonathan the Manchester City side um, they had a core of local lads playing for them they had Joe Corrigan Nicky Reid, Paul Power, Dave Bennett—all um, from the sort of the Manchester area. What, what are your thoughts on on where were Manchester City around this time? Because obviously, younger listeners to this podcast will know them as this sort of superpower now that came out of a sort of a, the, the second best club in Manchester. Where, where were they in the 1980s?
0: I, I suppose for them, it was it was sort of that slightly awkward phase where they they had a genuinely great side late 60s. Uh, you know, obviously won the league in 68. Um, which immediately you know, was overshadowed by United winning the European Cup, um, and it, clearly this side wasn't as good as as that team. They won the League Cup in in '76, um, so they were. I think they were always sort of one of those teams who who didn't quite deliver on on, on their potential. That you could see they could be a huge team; it could be immensely successful. Uh, and they probably weren't quite as successful as they might have been. I mean, they just got Dennis Stewart back from New York Cosmos, uh, where he'd gone in '77, as, as he would will tell you within five minutes of meeting you to be Pele's replacement. Um, <laughs> That's and fair. He, I think. Yeah. I think he was the only change to either team for the replay, wasn't he? he? He he came, he became City substitute. I think that was the only change either side made, and he he actually plays with the last eleven minutes. I can't believe I'm talking about Dennis Stewart immediately. <laughs> I've gone straight for the Sunderland bloke, who I know a bit. Um, but he, he, he does actually make a bit of a difference that last 11 minutes when he, when he comes on. Um, but yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of in that sort of transitional period. Um, and, and yeah, but by the mid-80s, obviously, you know, they're getting relegated under Billy McNeil. But, but yeah. it
2: was a, a remarkable season, in fact, the 8081, um, 81 because they'd started off with Malcolm Allison in charge who one of those people who for me and I think many others was simply one of those who, who was a terrific coach. He was a wonderful coach, there's no doubt about that, but just couldn't cope with being a manager. And once he got involved with things like transfers, it was a complete nightmare. Um, and they failed to win any of the first 12 games of the season uh, and so sacked Allison. Um, who, of course, had been such a great figure for them as coach uh, under, under Joe Mercer in the, the championship season that, that Jonathan mentioned, um, brought in John Bond from Norwich. And when he lost his first game, they were bottom of the league and, and were seriously worried about uh, relegation, even at that stage, because they were one of those clubs who always seemed to be teetering on the brink of some financial crisis or other. Um, but John Bond uh, got them on a terrific run. In fact, one of his very first games, they beat Spurs 3-1, which was a little pointer towards the final when the time came around. And and he got them up to finish 12th, I think, in the end, uh, which was only a couple of places behind Spurs. So they they did appear at that stage to be a team on the up. Um, and after the final, it went on and signed Trevor Francis. But from then on, it, as... Uh, as we might discuss later, it, it, it came downhill, but it, it was a time when they seemed to be on the up. And, and the first thing he did was to sign two players who would be very influential in the final, who were Tommy Hutchison and uh, Jerry Gow, who play a very combative role in uh, getting amongst the Spurs players, Hoddle uh, and dealers uh, what I was going to say about the the back the background to the final was that from Spurs' point of view, I think you really have to go back to the the summer of '78 and and the signing of the two Argentinians, which for those who, who weren't around at the time, you can probably still imagine what a, what a sensation it was because there weren't very many foreign players around at all at that stage. Um, Argentina had won the World Cup. Adidas had played every game and been one of their most influential players. Ricky Villa had been on a bit more as a sub. Um, and Jonathan will know all the background, I'm sure, of the clubs. But I imagine the impression over there was that that some of the clubs, who probably weren't in great financial position, realised that this might be a time to uh, to capitalise and that they could get really good money for for some of their better players.
0: Yeah, I mean, there had been a ban on players going overseas uh, in the build-up to the World Cup. The the Hunter had um, had stopped players going. So I think the only the only foreign registered player in that World Cup was. Um, uh, Mario Kempes. Kempes was
2: at uh, Valencia.
0: At Valencia, yeah, because he'd already been there and, and he was a big enough star that they weren't going to kick up a fuss about it. Uh, and and that was why um, the fullback who went to Birmingham, Tarantini, that was why he technically didn't have a club during that tournament, because he, he was out of contract, but he wasn't able to sign for a foreign club. But sort of the deal was, if you win the World Cup, you can go and you can make your fortune. Uh, because although the Hunter was in the late 70s, beginning to stabilise the economy, which then falls apart in the early 80s, which is why they end up um, invading the Falklands. There was a sort of sense that they needed uh, a foreign war to to focus domestic minds. So they they toyed with the idea of going to war with Chile over an island in the Beagle Channel. And actually, this this has a huge impact on the 82 FA Cup because if I get the sequence of events right... I think it's April the 2nd, Tottenham beat West Brom in the semi-final. On the 3rd, Ardiles goes back to Argentina. And I think Argentina play a friendly against the Soviet Union, which I don't think he's involved in. But he, he goes back to, to be involved in the build of the 82 World Cup. And then on the 4th, Argentina invades the Falklands. And on the 5th, uh, Thatcher puts together the task force to go and try and reclaim them. So the the, the you know the, the story of Ardiles and Via. I mean, Vias um, so he stayed in England, whereas Adilas didn't come back from 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 Argentina for like, eighteen months because he he went mm-hmm. to play in Paris, um, and Via ends up not playing in the eighty two final because he was seen as too politically sensitive. So their story is completely bound up in the Falklands and Anglo-Argentinian relations. But yeah, the, the, the seventy eight a you've just had the ban on foreign players lifted in England, and b you've just had the ban on players leaving Argentina lifted. And there's this mass exodus as people are chasing, you know, quite understandably, the yeah, chasing the cash away from a very turbulent country.
2: That was a fairly small club, Ardeas from from Huracan I imagine. From Huracan,
0: yeah. I mean, Huracan had a very they they won the league in I want to say seventy four, but I think that was the only title they'd ever won. Um, an inc- you know, incredibly attacking side, uh, Rene Usman was in in that team as well, and that was under Minotti. That was the only that's the only trophy Minotti's won apart from the World Cup, remarkably. But Ozzy
2: mm. had made it clear that, that he wanted to move abroad um, and was very very much thinking of Spain, Italy, France. I don't think the idea of England had occurred to him. So there were two um, surprising phone calls. First of all, Keith Birkinshaw sitting in his office at Tottenham when the phone rang, and it was Harry Haslam, the Sheffield United manager, who had very good contacts in Argentina because of his coach, Oscar Arche. And, and had
0: very nearly signed Maradona.
2: Yes, yeah. Um, decided he couldn't afford anyone like Ardiles, but his his question for Keith Birkinshaw, a very surprised Keith Birkinshaw was, do you want to sign Aussie Ardiles? Um, Tottenham's background was that they had just been promoted from the second division, having been rather surprisingly relegated the year before, and had only just scraped back into the top division on on goal difference in in third place. And these days they would they would have been in the playoffs. Um, But they did need strengthening. Um, In fact, from my mind, what they needed was a centre forward. Um, but uh, Berkenshaw is asked, do you want to sign Ozzy Ardiles? He's also told that Arsenal might be interested, which worried him a bit, that Arsenal drop out. And meanwhile, uh, he says, yes, he'll go over there and, and, and meet this, uh, this little lad. And Ozzy is equally surprised to get a phone call uh, saying, the manager of Tottenham wants to meet you. Um, I imagine he knew a bit about Spurs, but it certainly wasn't what he was thinking about um, coming to England at all. Uh, But he um, he got on very well with the meeting, uh, just him and Keith Birkinshaw, no agents or anything involved. Um, And I think it was probably Birkinshaw who who suggested that it would be a good idea if if um, somebody else came over with him. And Ricky Villa had been his roommate throughout the uh, the 78 World Cup and they they were big powers. And so he was suggested, um, and Birkinshaw went back to the Spurs chairman and said, uh, can we sign two of them? And again, slightly to the surprise because Spurs weren't known as a, a big spending club at that, been regarded as a bit parsimonious um, by their players in particular. Um, and surprisingly, he got the go-ahead. So from a team which, which, for my money, needed above all a centre-forward, they'd actually bought two midfield players. And... The thing that is very easily forgotten is that for two seasons, um, things didn't actually go terribly well at all. Um, They they had a terrific start. The first fixture of the season, which was fantastic, they're drawn away to Nottingham Forest, the champions. So you have the champions against the the team with these two new Argentinians and the most sensational transfer of the summer. Um, Capacity crowd at at the city ground and they get a one-all draw. And not only that, but VIA scores the Spurs goal. So it all looks hunky-dory, except that by Christmas, um, the first home game, they lost 4-1 to Aston Villa. At the start of September, they went to Anfield and lost 7-0 to Liverpool. They then came back the week after that in the League Cup and played at home to Swansea, who are in the third division. And with Tommy Smith clattering into our dealers and everybody else, Swansea beat them 3-1. And and this, in the days, remember, when teams didn't just make nine or ten changes for the League Cup, they put out their first team because they wanted to win it. So they've lost 7-0 to Villa, lost two home games, and even before Christmas, when things weren't really improving at all, uh, they play Arsenal in the Argentinians' first North London derby, and, and they're told naturally by all the English lads, this is the one we've really got to win. And Arsenal win 5-0 at White Hart Lake. (laughs) So it's not going terribly well, really. Um, Spurs finish 11th. In the second season, they're 14th. They're in the bottom Mm. half of the table. Glenn Hoddle, who has really come on and matured as a player, is the leading scorer. In fact, he's he's the only one who looks likely to score. And they still haven't signed any strikers. Um, When they'd gone up, the the main striker was John Duncan, a Scottish lad who was terribly injury-prone. And in fact, within a couple of, of games of that season, they sold him. So,
0: and that's, that's for John Duncan, who goes on to manage Chesterfield. Yes, yes. When they he get goes, to the Cup yeah. semi-final. Yeah, very, another very
2: nice man. who did uh, did amazingly well at Chesterfield. So, summer of 1980, going into the season we're, we're going to talk about, um, they finally pushed the boat out and signed not one, but two Strikers. Um, Steve Archibald for 800000 from Aberdeen, which I think at the time was the, the biggest fee between the Scottish and, and English club. And then, uh, perhaps even more surprisingly, because he looked exactly like the sort of player they wanted, very quick, very sharp centre-forward, Garth uh, Brooks comes from Stoke for about 600000 So this, um, this rather parsimonious Spurs board have, have suddenly uh, spent £1.5 on, on two strikers. And they do look, at least, they begin to look like a, a different team. And yet still uh, in the league, only 10th um, in, in the whole of that season, uh, a season in which Crooks and Archibald between them get, get nearly 50 goals. And it, it was obvious what the problems were because they scored nearly as many goals as the champions, who are Aston Villa, um, but they conceded more than one of the relegated teams. So,
0: but I mean, you, you look at that midfield... And you think, you know, from from right to left, via Adilas, Hoddle, Galvin, Tony Galvin on the left. Mm. I'm not seeing many tackles <laughs> in that midfield. No. And, and I know Adilas, by 87, was playing as a sort of deep-lying playmaker with uh, Hodge and um, Paul Allen either side, you know, sort of scuffling around. But there isn't a lot of scuffle in that team. No, that, that's no.
2: exactly the problem. I, I happened to have, have spoken to a couple of those older Spurs players quite recently for, for interviews and... Uh, Paul Miller, who's centre-half in the uh, in the Cup Final, uh, said what we missed and what we lacked was a, a defensive midfield player. Um, that, the irony of which, of course, was that they had one called Graham Souness, who turned out not to be a bad player, and, and let him go because he was so frustrated that he was in the reserves and, and couldn't get in the first team. And I think Bill Nicholson basically just got a bit fed up for him, and when he got a phone call from Middlesbrough asking if they could take him, he, he said, off you go. Um, so that that was what they missed. The thing, uh, Terry Naylor, who missed out, he had literally just left before this 1980 season, missed out on all the excitement. He said uh, he said to me, the trouble was we had Ozzy and Ricky and Glenn in midfield, but we only had one ball. And even when we had the ball, only one of them could have it. And, and the implication, of course, also was that when Spurs didn't have the ball, when the opposition... Uh, had it either as Jonathan says uh, they weren't going to win many tackles or those three weren't going to be seen um, even when when Ozzy was was dropping a bit deeper as well so it was clear what the problem was of course it was wonderfully exciting to watch I mean I, I was lucky enough at, at that stage I could virtually choose which, which London game I went to each week and, and it was very tempting every week Spurs were at home to say yes I why can't do me um, because there there was some terrific entertainment there. But that, yeah. that was the problem with the, um, with the side. And really, uh, we, we, we'll see uh, how, how much of a problem it was in, in the actual final as well.
1: Absolutely. All right, let's have a quick break, everybody. And then after that, we'll talk about the final itself. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Greatest Games on the Blizzard. So, yes, gentlemen, to the match, the 100th FA Cup final. Um, it was 10th, Spurs versus 12th, uh, Manchester City. And uh, it went to a replay, of course, which is the, the game we're focusing on. But the first game, Jonathan finished 1-1 with uh, Tommy Hutchison scoring at both ends. Uh, scores a lovely header for Manchester City and then a terrible own goal, which is which is also quite comical, really.
0: Yeah, I mean, his head is a great goal. You know, Ray Ransom crossed the right? I, I think a modern team would wonder quite how the fullback had been given so much space. But, you know, you've still got to put the cross and you've still got to score it. Uh, and John Watson has a very strange bit of commentary where he goes, <laughs> and the oldest man on the pitch has... <laughs> well, is it that surprising the oldest man on the pitch should score? <laughs> but anyway, he does. And then, he was, I think he um, was, what, 33, was he? He wasn't that old. Yeah, I mean, I know people aged quicker in those days, but still, yes, quite... <laughs> Uh, but he, even if he'd been forty, yeah, yeah, <laughs> why, true. Why, why is it surprising he scored? It'd be surprising if he ran like eighty yards and scored, <laughs> but to put a header in the top corner, much of your age really matters. Anyway, um, I, I, I th- th- it's, it was a free kick. What ten minutes to go, mm. and I think what happens is there's there's a Spurs player makes a run to down the blind side of the wall, and I think Hutchison goes across to try and cover that, and then when Huddle, you know, the free kick was. So sort of two touches before Hoddle strikes it. And so he's, he's had time to sort of make that run off the wall to try and check the run. And and so he's in that sort of horrible position just outside the right-hand post, and the ball yeah you know, clips him and, and loops into the far corner. So it looks terrible, but I think he's actually a bit unlucky because he, he, his, his, his fault, if it's a fault, is to be the one who's alert to that. It's a
1: type of goal that you don't see very often at all. It's, it just looks a bit strange. Yeah. When I say comical, yeah, it looks it's off. not yeah, because yeah. he's done something ridiculously stupid, of course. No, but the game finished. Oh, sorry, Steve. Sorry,
2: Jack Charlton on, on. I think it was the ITV commentary, did actually blame him. He said what he was doing there. Just one quick story about that free kick. Um, Steve Perryman, whose uh, autobiography, if, if anyone ever comes across it, is, for my money, one of the very best of, of that era, very intelligent lad. Uh, one of his great complaints about Aussie in particular, and, and he loved him and all the Spurs players loved him, but he would he described how on, on a Friday morning, uh, like a lot of teams, they would do some set pieces to finish their training session and they would spend half an hour or 40 minutes working on things exactly like that, free kick just outside the penalty area, and, and they'd do it and do it and do it and do it until they got it off pat. And then the next uh, the Saturday afternoon, the next day, when they got a free kick in exactly that position that Glenn Hoddle was supposed to do something clever with, Ozzy Ardiles would grab the ball and think he'd seen a clever pass and play a clever pass and drive everybody mad, um, including the manager, because he was an off-the-cuff player in, in so many ways. And and Steve Perryman's big thing and, and one of the reasons which he failed they weren't as successful as they should have been in, in these earlier years, was they just weren't organised enough. His big thing was organisation, big thing, was playing off the cuff, and, and the manager was really caught somewhere in between the two. Um, but yeah, I was going to say, Jack, Jack Charlton actually did blame Tommy Hutchinson for that on, on one of the commentaries. He, he basically said, what is he doing there? And, uh, and Jonathan's right that he thought somebody was was going to go down that side but when you look at it, he's a very long way back, and and it does look as though Joe Corrigan would have comfortably. It was a decent hit by Glenn Hoddle, but it did look as though Joe Corrigan would comfortably have saved it. So Tommy Hutchinson, I think, became the first player since and probably only the second one ever since 1946 to score at, at both ends in a cup final. You, you had to give it as an own goal; it very definitely was. Um, and uh, and he becomes. Um, one of the one of the personality players of the uh, of that final for all the newspapers and so on. The other one, of course, is Ricky Villa, who frankly had a terrible game. Um, Brian Moore in the ITV the cut file in those days, that younger people may not know, was always shown on both channels, BBC and ITV. And uh, uh, Brian Moore, the the great ITV commentator, picked up very early on that he said Ricky Villa is just having no impression on this game. And he was taken off um, in the second half, 65, 66 minutes. Uh, And there's this wonderful image of him. He walks all the way from the bench, walks all the way round to the tunnel end, to the dressing room, all on his own, looking extremely miserable. Um, And Ozzy uh, said later that that he was very, uh, Via was actually very angry, but really he didn't have much of a case because he had been playing very poorly.
0: Do you think in in the seeing that walk the thing it reminded me of was was Ratin having been sent off in sixty six? Oh. Do you do you think there was a self conscious replication of that? I I know that the tunnel was in a different place in sixty six, so he's walking sort of in the to a different corner, oh. but it, that sort of Argentinian's long slow trudge off a of Wembley pitch. Yeah, it, it, seemed seemed very familiar. It, it,
2: it, was a, it was a great image, and uh, and Birkenshaw then, of course, had to make a big decision about whether to pick him for the replay. Uh, yeah, Gary Brook, who was a young uh, Spurs lad, who sort was of slightly chunky, um, not not most skillful, but but a more dynamic player in a way, uh, had come on a substitute, and uh, and Birkenshaw had to decide whether to to give him a game or or pick. Ricky Via and and you decided to go with Via.
1: Yeah, well, they, they suppose, were supposed to run changed, of course. Yes, uh, in that in that replay, it, it's funny because Via said um, years later he said, you know, he knew he was poor in that first match, and he said, I tried to explain this to English people or my teammates that there was no in between with me. I either played well or I was poor. In that game, I was poor but it was almost as if it was a normal situation for me. I wasn't very consistent. You don't often hear footballers <laughs> saying something like that, do you, Jonathan? Oh, the trouble with me is it was, it was always hot or cold.
0: Yeah, but I, 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 was, I guess there's an honesty to it. Yeah, but it's, also, yeah. it's, it's, it's quite a good way of sort of, um, yeah, abnegating responsibility, just out, <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm never going to be seven out of ten. Nine or four, you know?
1: <laughs> you can't blame me for this. Um, but, but he did start, of course, um, Steve, and it would become his final. And in that final, we only had to wait eight minutes for the first goal, and it was Ricky himself who scored.
2: Yes, yeah, a great moment for him. Um Because, of course, if anything had gone wrong for him early on, I mean, Ozzy Ibile's in, in one of his autobiographies are actually... Asked the question, what would have happened if Via had missed that goal? Because it was a very straightforward goal. Um, Ardilas had, had started it, We would beaten three men beautifully out on the touchline, and Steve Archibald had his shot blocked. And it came back off the goalkeeper for a chance, which it, it would have been. And, and Via must score, to uh, quote another famous bit of a FA Cup final commentary. Um, but if if for any reason he had missed it, you can imagine yeah, what that would have done to his confidence. But instead, you know, he's got redemption within the six, seven minutes of, of mm. the start of the game. Um, there, there was some doubt raised as, as to whether there might have been an offside decision, whether Archibald had been, had been offside. It was difficult to tell from the uh, from the replays that, that, that they had then. But um, fantastic start. And then, of course, within two minutes, an equaliser. Um <laughs> with one of uh, what Jimmy Hill uh, at the time said, uh, I think perhaps the best goal ever seen in a Wembley Cup final, which for, for about an yeah. hour it was.
1: Uh, yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, I think I think it's better than Via's goal.
1: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree, actually. I, I mean, it's... I don't
0: think it's as good as Jackie Milburn's goal in 55.
1: Oh, that's a beauty. That, yeah, that was just a long shot, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's a bit more than that it's a turn and acceleration a long shot
1: yeah but Steve mckenzie's it's a, it's a great forgotten goal understandably obviously they didn't win and, and, and Via scores um, a sort of uh, perhaps a more sort of it's a very different type of goal of course maybe we see Less goals like that, but Mackenzie, yeah, you you put it in in that bracket of great forgotten goals. I mean, in the the Euros that have just happened, you think of you know Benzema and Pogba's great goals against Switzerland. You know they'll be forgotten because they lost the game. And I think this Mackenzie one's one of those ones that, that a lot of people. I I was actually I knew there was a, a couple of great goals in this game, and I needed to remind myself of it. And Tommy, um, Tommy
2: Hutchinson, who set it up for him, of course, with the header and, and yeah. a bit of redemption for him as well. And he hits this magnificent volley. When I, when I talked about Malcolm Allison earlier and transfers, I, I was a little bit unfair in Steve McKenzie, who was only 19 at the time of this game, uh, was one of Allison's most famous transfers and he paid £250,000 for him before he'd ever played a league game for Crystal Palace. And everybody said, oh, this is Malcolm being mad as usual because 250,000 in those days was a, was a bit of a fee and for a, someone who was, was probably 17, if not 18 at the time. Um, but Malcolm thought he'd, he'd got this tremendous potential and, and he was one of those who, unlike Steve Daly and 1.6 million and some of the others who Malcolm signed, um, did actually live up to it and, and, and hit this tremendous volley um, to equalise. So within 10 minutes of the, of the final, we've got two goals.
1: Mm. And not long after that, you know, the, the, I mean, the game, yeah, you've already got two goals. It, it suddenly opens up, and it seems that it was sort of quite end to end fairly early on. Glenn Hoddle hits the post from a free kick on the, on the highlights. And you said earlier, Steve, that they said that, you know, they needed more than one football with the with the players in that team. We saw, I mean, you saw Ozzy Ardiles' quality and, and Snake Kips, you know, in the build up to the first goal. See what Villa does, of course, in his second goal. You've got Hoddle in there as well did they all get on i mean did it did it work cuz when you have that much creativity and 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 players like that who want the ball was there ever were they competitive with each other or did they understand uh, where where each one fitted into the to the free flowing uh, free scoring and free conceding system that they seem to have
2: no there there was a lot of respect and and Ozzy was, uh, was very obviously uh, didn't know all that much about Glenn Hoddle when he first came here because Glenn Hoddle was only just breaking into the uh, the England side not not all that much earlier. Um, One or two of the Spurs players, Steve Perryman, I remember, actually thought Ricky Villa, when he first saw them in training and so on, he thought Villa was the better player because he had this tremendous close control. They they thought he was just going to be a big, tough Argentinian, those who hadn't seen much of him in his sub-appearances in the World Cup. Um, And they wondered how Adidas would fare in the the rough and tumble world of of, uh, early 80s football league play. Um, mm. So there, there was respect for, for each other. There was a little bit of, of uh, disappointment for people like Spurs. i one or two other uh, very promising younger players like Neil McNabb, who ironically ended up at, at Man City, a very clever little midfield player. And he was the sort of the guy who missed out because, because uh, the two Argentinians had come in. So, no, mm. there, there, there was that respect between them. The other important thing, I think, about the second game was the, the lesson Spurs took from the first one was that they just had to be a bit physically tougher. I mean, they had people who could do that, Paul Miller and Graham Roberts at the back, and, and Perryman would always put his foot in. But it, even Ardila said before the game, we've got to battle harder, we've got to do more running. And that that was the lesson they took from it. And uh, that was one of the reasons why it became quite such a feisty game. I, I lost count in the end, but I think there were at least five booked by um, Keith Hackett, wasn't it? Um, yeah and and i think there'd been three or four on in the first game anyway so it, yeah. it, it did get uh, it got quite physical but as you say it uh, became wonderfully end to end even in in that first half Villa almost uh, got a, a, a via almost got another goal Hoddle hit the post the city were becoming dangerous on the break and uh, and it, it it's at half time at 1-1 it, it it already looked a, a very decent cup ride
1: yeah it was it was a great moment in that first half Jonathan, it, which testifies to the game being end-to-end and also people going a bit gung-ho with the Spurs um, English-born, Serbian father, uh, goalkeeper Miliar Aleksic, who comes flying out and punches the ball comfortably outside his own box.
0: Oh, way outside. It's, a good four or five yards outside. It's absolutely outrageous. Comes over the top of Dave Bennett. Yeah. <laughs> and it's sort of just... I mean, now it's just a red card. Yeah. The reddest of red cards immediate. No, yeah. Nobody even think about it. And and so then oh, was that outside the board oh, It is. Well, he's, he's given a free kick. Mm. Oh, a referee showing showing leniency by not showing me yellow card. Yeah, is it? Come on, <laughs> like you can't do that. Like. It, it
2: was pointed out that he had done the same thing in the league a bit earlier and had got booked. Whether um, mm. whether referees had this thing about um, not not remember it was a long time before a player was sent off at the cup final, wasn't it? You always felt they were very lucky to do that. Of course, by 1981. You actually had to kill somebody to to get sent off, <laughs> um, and it had to be a pretty bad tackle to uh, yeah. to get your name taken.
0: Um, this is why uh, the, five was. was You'll remember this better than me, but the when did the professional foul law come in? Because that that was sort of a response to. Paul Allen being pulled
2: down. Yes, the previous 19, Cup final. yes, yes, uh, 1980. Yeah, so that that was in, and and that was Kevin Moran, wasn't it? Who then got to that was United and Everton in '85. Yeah, did get sent off, and I mean everybody felt that that Willie Young should have been sent off for that that foul on Paul Allen. But
0: ought- but it's interesting that sort of a goalkeeper handling the ball is not seen as the same level no. of offence as pulling a player down. But actually, you know, if, if he. If he'd stayed on his line, if he hadn't come flying out, Dave Bennett would have been in the box. Mm-hmm. If he could see me, he controlled it, mm. oh, it with a yeah. clear shot. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is quite comical to look back on uh, nowadays. But but as you say, um, Steve won all at half-time, nicely poised. And then uh, on 50 minutes, Keith Hackett gives a penalty for a foul on Bennett. And, and bearing in mind everything we've just said there, I, I actually thought for a penalty in the early 80s, it was quite soft.
2: Yeah, I thought so. Or oh, of course, I was being bi- very biased at this point. Uh, probably told LBC listeners that there's an astonishing decision. He's actually given a penalty. Um, it was it was a, certainly a nudge by Paul Miller. I mean, Miller Bennett was breaking through into the area. Miller was almost level with him because he he, he nudged him, and then unfortunately Chris Hewton came in from the other side, and um, you could imagine. Commentators these days would say it's they might feel still it's a, it's a bit soft, or they would say, Well, we've seen and given yeah, the other great cliche. Um, but but Keith Hackett gave it so not Spurs didn't protest that much. If you look at the
0: I, I think it's a pen, Sorry. okay. All right, I mean, it's not it's not the Miller sort of it's not the Miller arm, it's it's clips his heel, yeah. Okay. And I, I, from the position that I think it's one of those, it probably very much depends on the, on the angle you see it from because it's. For 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 TV viewer, it's the second angle of the show from behind the goal where you see the clip on the heel very clearly, and given Hackett is sort of ten yards behind on a slight angle, he probably had a very clear view of that. So I I I think it's a totally. And when I first saw, it, I thought because you know when you first see you don't realise Hutton's taking his heel, but as soon as you see that clip on the heel, it's I think it's just a pain. Uh, it was
2: a far side for me, so that's why I'll be
0: given
2: the impression that it might have been very harsh. Um, and I probably looked at my notes like John Motson and said, oh, the first cup final penalty for nearly 20 years, which is another yeah. another remarkable <laughs> statistic. And, yeah. uh, and Kevin Reeves, who I think one of John Bond's old Norwich players, um,
0: steps up to take it with a lot of pressure and, and takes a very good penalty.
1: Yeah, dispatches it in the corner.
0: I don't know if you noticed, again, I, I see this as delivered, but Alexic is clearly standing off center Mm-hmm. So he, when you, it's very obvious when you see the camera from behind the goal that he's wanting Reeves to go to to the his to the keeper's left, and he does, but because Alexis is off centre, he can't get
1: anywhere near <laughs> Yeah, this. thanks very much, mate. I appreciate that, yeah. Um, yeah, as you say, the game uh, was a bit of a feisty one. It certainly gets heated from there. And there's... Uh, Jerry Gow goes very goes in very heavily on Aussie Ardiles at, at one moment, and there's a bit of fisticuffs and so on. And even a fan runs on the pitch. And, uh, I, I mean, I'm guessing, uh, you mentioned earlier, the, the, the likes of Ardiles coming to English football... With those sort of mazy dribbles and runs, he probably got quite a bit of treatment, I would imagine, when he was playing for Spurs. Steve,
2: yeah, I think that that uh, I think he was a bit surprised by his first meeting with Tommy Smith, and when um, Swansea, if you remember, had, had taken all these old Liverpool players down there and, mm. and started their great run up that the divisions, um, and and yes, there would have been a few who were, who were after him, and he probably didn't get the protection. But of course, I, I Jonathan will know. Um, Argentinian football had its share. True, yeah, yeah, very true, very
0: true. No, no, never booking in Argentinian football. Yeah, he never saw a foul. <laughs> very, very honest. Yeah, all about skill. Absolutely no, no cynicism in the Argentinian game in the seventies. Yeah, I'm forgetting myself. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, and I think he, he didn't. I don't. I don't recall that he that he ever complained too bitterly about it at all. He, he might have regarded uh, Ricky Villa as, as a little bit of a minder for him and. And certainly the others like, uh, like Miller and, and Roberts would have looked out for anyone who they felt was, uh, was treating him harshly. But as you say, I think Jerry Gow, there was a, on, on the BBC commentary, there was certainly a little lecture, a rather pious lecture from Jimmy Hill about uh, <laughs> Jerry Gow's behaviour. The funny thing was, again, in comparison to the modern summarisers, I mean, you, you didn't hear from Jimmy Hill for about 10 minutes at a time. And then eventually John Watson would remember he was there and say a word from Jimmy Hill, and, and Jimmy, who was, who was both, again, younger listeners, probably just, just know him as a sort of TV presenter and pundit, but was a, a, a wonderful manager at his time, and the, the, the job he did for Coventry City, um, taking them from the 3rd to the 1st Division, and then, then very dramatically resigning on, on the, the, almost the eve of their the, the first 1st Division game, because he wanted a 10-year contract. Uh, I mean, he could have been one of the, the outstanding managers of, of the time, and... Uh, and did great work off off the field as well. Um so yeah Jerry Gow was uh, was stirring them up but Spurs as I say, had, had learnt the lesson that they they had to be a bit tougher as well and um and eventually got back into the game although they, they must have been wondering if um if it was all going to go wrong with what about 20 minutes to play.
1: Mm. Yeah absolutely. I mean uh Steve mentioned earlier about the, the two signings that uh, Spurs had made, Jonathan and Garth Crooks being one of them, and he gets the equaliser. Uh, but it's a lovely ball in from Glenn Hoddle that sets the goal Yeah, up.
0: well, there's, there's sort of, just before this is what looks a pretty obvious handball by Tommy Caton. It's not given. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, I, th- I think the ball doesn't even go out of play. It's sort of recycled. And Hoddle plays this, well, you know, Veer plays it in from the left to Hoddle, He chips this lovely ball over the top. And Archie Ball takes it down, and probably would have recovered to get there, but doesn't need to because Crooks is backing up and and, and slams it in to to equalise.
1: Yeah, two all, and and then it's you know so nicely poised again. But so just on on Garth Crooks, yes,
0: seeing this midfield, you do understand some of those Team of the Week selections for the BBC <laughs> now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Uh, anyway, we must go to the moment that really uh, is, is the most memorable one of this cup final, Steve. 76 minutes in. That Ricky Via goal.
2: Yeah, Tony Galvin actually starts it. Tony Galvin was a, a player who I always really liked, a very strong, running, uh, left footed player who, who liked to hug that touchline. Uh, almost certainly the only ever Republic of Ireland international who had a degree in Russian studies. Um, which, as he admitted, was never much used to him as, as a footballer because he didn't keep his rushing up. He was very interesting bloke. He was um, he was very interested in politics. He was a, a very rare example of quite a, a, a left wing footballer um, and quite a late developer because he'd done his university studies and. Um, and come down quite. I think he was 20 or so before he actually signed a full-time professional contract. But he'd made that um, that left-sided position his own. He starts it with a very good run from his own half, whereas he was normally very good at going past the fullback on the outside. He actually comes back inside and plays it with his right foot into Ricky Villa, um, who's still got a, a, a lot of City defenders in front of him, and, and suddenly starts off on this amazing run um i mean once he gets into the penalty area there are about four city players around him and by the end of the move um i made it seven uh seven blue shirts in the penalty area um and he he have beats at least four of them two of them close in on him and, and, and joe corrigan of course comes rushing out and he have made some had two very good games joe corrigan um and made some some brave saves Uh, and Corrigan goes plunging down to to, to try and dive at his feet but finds that the the ball is past him and and it it was that I think I mentioned close control earlier that that was probably Ricky's greatest strength um, especially for a big man and that was one of the things that that surprised the the Spurs players themselves. and suddenly we've got, you know, suddenly poor old Steve McKenzie's goal is completely forgotten. And yeah, that, but he's, he's about to end up with a, a, a runner's up medal as well um, because of what what was, I believe, later voted Wendley's goal of the century.
1: Yeah, goal of the century, Jonathan, eh? Against some
0: stiff competition. Not even goal of the match for me. So.
1: <laughs> uh, but it was a worthy winner, though, for most cut oh, in, in
0: context, <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. Um, I mean, this, the odd thing about it is when you when you watch it back, and obviously it's, it'd be very different if you were there in a moment, seeing it live. But he basically runs forwards and mm. then turns at right angles and runs right mm-hmm. and then puts it in, and, and no defender <laughs> gets anywhere near it. Mm. Somehow, this very kind of straight run is enough. But I, mean, uh, I of- guess that's where the space was, and, and and yeah, but it's a close control. Steve's absolutely right that uh it makes it look perhaps less impressive than it is because it it seems so natural and so easy.
1: Mm -hmm. But it's, yeah, but it's undoubtedly a great goal and, and it wins Spurs the match, Steve. And you said earlier that that, that this game, if I'm, if I'm right in remembering that it, the, the, the two clubs were at sort of uh, at pivotal points and Spurs would obviously go on and defend their their FA Cup crown and then would win a UEFA Cup. And, 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 and that was it. Do you think this was a real sliding doors moment then for both teams?
2: Well, yes, um, particularly for Spurs. As you say, they retained the FA Cup, um, again, with, with a replay. Uh, we certainly mm-hmm. get two replays in, in two years. Uh, but in that season, um, not only retain the FA Cup, they're the League Cup runners-up against the, that great Liverpool side. They actually take the league in the, in the League Cup final against Liverpool. They get to the semi-final of the Cup Winners' Cup. I remember going to, to Barcelona for the, the second leg of the semi-final and they were just edged out by, by a single goal there. And they're fourth in the league as well. Um so, But in, the, in those days when, as I said, the, the, the teams took the League Cup very seriously, you uh, fixture congestion would, would frequently become a big problem. And so towards the end of the season, even if the League Cup is, is all played a little bit earlier, you've got a big interest in Europe, big run in the FA Cup with, with uh, one or two replays as well and and this cup winner's cup which was which was very good to them and, and they're still technically in the running but they actually finished fourth two years running um in the league Keith Birkenshaw as it say goes and, and they win the UEFA Cup in 84 but from from that moment of winning the FA Cup they they really are on the up even even in all those years when the year doesn't end in one they um they still manage to win some things. Um, and, and even later in the decade, um, 85, 87, you know, they're third both times to uh, to Everton, Peter Shrews and, and David Cleat, and FA Cup runners-up in the 87 final, which we mentioned. And, and it's only when David Cleet had to leave because of a sort of personal scandal um, that it begins to fall apart a little bit for them. Um, and, and City, being very City-ish, they are the club, remember, who uh, were just before the the Second World War, won, won the league championship and then got relegated the next season, which uh, which takes...
0: As top scorers yeah, as well. Yeah, top scorers.
2: <laughs> Does take some doing. Um, City managed to get relegated within two years of, of this cup final, uh, got up again, of course, went down again. And it was really about 10 years, say 1991, before they, they managed to re-establish themselves in, in the mm-hmm. first division at all, after going through a whole, a whole crop of managers. So uh, very much, um, oddly, a, a good start to that following season and under John Bond. As I say, he signed Trevor Francis, who was still a, a very decent player. But that was one of those moves which just didn't work out in the end. And uh, and it was very much downhill for, uh, for a long time for City.
1: Yeah. Well, when all said and done, it was a little... Golden period for Spurs because <laughs> this is not a slight on them at all. But you know, factually speaking, they haven't won that many trophies, and to, to get a couple of FA Cups in in that time and anyway, for Cup was was very good. Steve, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you about this Cup final. Thank you very much for coming on the pod.
2: Thank you. It was great fun to uh, to relive it all. I must say.
1: <laughs> For more stories like that, do check out theblizzard.co.uk. Everybody, uh, but thanks again to Steve and uh, myself and Jonathan. We'll be back next week with another great game from the history of football. See you then.